Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's almost an embedded education culturally around dealing with the unknown, which is kind of constantly there for humanity, right? And much of what we do is to kind of cope with the idea of uncertainty, and that uncertainty ultimately is death, of course, you know, as humans, that's that's the ultimate uncertainty. But certainly, like you said, the uncertainty of what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to eat? What's my neck, you know, on a more survival level, but maybe on a more um, kind of evolved level, you might think, oh, what's what's my career aspirations? How do I move from good to great? You know, all the kinds of well-being and sort of wellness narratives around that. And I think in North America, we're, we're in, in some ways, maybe, you know, there's a real power to returning to sitting with uncertainty and being comfortable with uncertainty so that the fear, that kind of unconscious fear that's always driving us, you know, can kind of be acknowledged. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Derek, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I found out about your work because your publicist wrote in and told me about your book, Rewriting Our Stories. Uh, and I was so intrigued by the way that you described this process of rewriting our stories because it wasn't just a sort of standard self-improvement bullshit, but it was really deep and it looked at sort of oppressive social structures and all sorts of things, which we'll get into. Um, so on that note, I want to start by asking what I think is a very relevant question. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up and your worldview and the career choices that you've made? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, you know, the, my social groups were very mixed. Um, and I think like many of us, those, those years were, were quite fraught, but they were also incredibly creative for me. And I think the high school years are when I really fell in love with creativity. I mean, to speak to, you know, the theme of the podcast, those were years where, I mean, I, I had flirted with creativity before high school, but it, those were the years where I, I embraced it. And I said, no, I want to, I want to be a creative person. I want to make sure this is a, you know, a, a driving force in my life. How do I do that? Um, and, and if I rewind just a little bit, I sort of had dual interests throughout my, my whole upbringing. Um, one was sport and, and, and athletics. Um, I played uh, soccer and baseball and I was, you know, incredibly devoted to both for many, many years, um, thought maybe, you know, I'd go play university, uh, baseball, college ball, and that sort of thing. But I also played music that whole period too, since I was like it was seven or eight. And ultimately in high school, there was kind of a standoff between where does my future lie? Do I keep going with sport or do I take music and go that direction? Um, and the, uh, the music won out, um, partly because I felt the creativity was so much greater, um, in that endeavor. And so my social groups, as a result, were very much centered around um, music. So, you know, musical theater and uh, different jazz bands and symphonic bands and, you know, rock bands and you name it. I was just trying to play as much music as I could. And, and I was very into improvisation. And I felt like that was the portal to creativity, that sort of messiness 
of improvisation. And so, yeah, those those social groups in those years really, I'm very fortunate because I look back and I think how many different ways that could have went. But to this moment, even on this podcast, that period of really diving into um, you know, the, those artistic creative aspects of myself, which really obviously allows one to confront and self-reflect and who they are as well, you know, which is partly what my book's about too, in terms of how you use art space kind of education, do that. So yeah, those social groups were, 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 uh, richly supportive. Um, and they allowed me to kind of expand in all sorts of directions that I, that I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you, came to this realization in high school, which I think is fairly early. And, and one of the things you say in the book is that because our beliefs are constructed value systems, they're inherited and learned within a fixed social system. They've been assembled by society through families, education, law, religion, state, or pop culture, and have surrounded us since we're children. And a lot of people are socialized to basically play by the rules of the game, um, to do what they've been told, and to basically not really think for themselves, but, you know, take whatever life plan has been prescribed to them by the world around them as early as high school and make decisions based on that life plan. Uh, why do you think that you had the foresight at that age to not do that? You know, this is a question I thought about when I, when I was writing the book and thinking about, um, the social belief systems that are constructed for us. I mean, I, I am admittedly a believer in social construct constructionism, which is as you, as you really well defined, you know, the, uh, the, the idea that we are born into the world and all these social systems are imp imprinted and planted upon us, whether it's religion or political belief systems or, you know, cultural belief systems. And some of those belief systems are incredibly generative and, and wonderful and they do us very well. And many of them are not, you know, and I guess it's about our life is about sorting out, which are the ones we want to keep cultivating and which are the ones we want to sort of move off of. And when we want to move off of some of those social belief systems, it can be incredibly difficult, right? I mean, it can take years. I mean, I'm still kind of trying to unpack some of the social conditioning that I had as a, as a child that I had, you know, even as a young adult. Um, you know, patriarchy is a great one, you know, in terms of how do I become a better ally to those you know, who, who, you know, don't believe in that belief system and, you know, certainly being raised in, in, in a kind of patriarchal culture, you know, being identifying as, as a boy or a man, you know, it, it certainly um, influenced a lot of my life. And it's been a lot of unpacking and trying to get out of those belief systems, you know, that's just one example. Um, but, you know, back to back to your question, you know, it, it, I, it, and I was, as I was writing the book, I was, I was reflecting on on those kinds of things. What what were some of those moments or what were, where were some of those um, opportunities where I was able to kind of reflect and see some of those belief systems and say, yeah, no, that one's not for me. That's not, that's not the way I want to be in the world. And, you know, I mean, I, I suppose it's always, I had a supportive family, even though, you know, interestingly, my family's belief systems were quite conservative and that's not, those aren't my belief systems now. Um, but there, but within that, and I think this is kind of where the world misses these opportunities, even though that was kind of a structure and there are certain belief systems around political identity and, you know, um, certain values and morals and that sort of thing, there was still a sense of support and love, right? And, and that, that existed. And I think that allowed me the space to kind of feel safe to explore, to um, feel what, what is kind of what feels right, what feels good for me. And I think, like I said, that creative thread that started, you know, back when I was maybe six or seven, when I started playing piano, not that that was my primary instrument, but that's just what I started on. I feel like those threads really had a profound impact in terms of almost rewiring um, the way that I perceive, you know, and the way that I uh, value things. And so, um, you know, I think, I think over time that was developing me in a way that I wasn't so aware of until I kind of became, you know, initiated as it were into that sort of young adult stage and, and so, sort of saw the patterns of, Hey, wait a minute. I've kind of been, you know, working on thinking about, um, some of these social systems for a long time. And now I have a real opportunity to say, you know, where do I want to go in my life and, and what do I want to put my effort and time into, um, 
And so, uh, you know, I felt like, again, you know, returning to sort of looking almost like I was rewriting my story at the moment without even kind of knowing that that was what was happening, but knowing there are all these stories that were influencing me and some I wanted to continue and some I didn't. And, And that's, you know, really, I think, set me in a certain path. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder, you know, having been raised by Indian parents where, you know, our sort of social structure and belief systems were, you know, effectively go to the best damn school you can go to, uh, you know, get, you know, an education, which are, you know, like you said, they're, they're invaluable and generative in a lot of ways, but also keep you thinking for your, for, for thinking for yourself. And one thing I wonder is in the boundaries of deeply embedded social structures, how do you begin to challenge belief systems and transform them? Like, let's say education, let's just take education, for example, where you know, education is effectively a you know constructed social system in which there are rules that you follow uh, and there are expectations and there are people who thrive and people who don't within the boundaries of it. So how do you begin to basically change the belief system, I guess, or of an entire social structure like the education system? Well, I think this speaks to what you and I were chatting about um, just briefly before the podcast started, and that is, you know, exposure to ideas and exposure to um, different ways of thinking, different cultures, different values, different perceptions. You know, we, we do live in a world right now that 
that obviously has been in some ways amplified by by the effects of social media, although I, I don't blame social media as much as other people. I just think it amplifies an already existing issue, usually in culture, and, and obviously makes it more challenging um, in many ways. But we can footnote that, put that on the shelf, because that's a whole different topic. But I, I do think we we are in these kind of information bubbles, these silos, these filter bubbles, you know, all the ways in which we talk about it. And one of the one of the things that I think are, is so damaging about that is it doesn't access to other ideas and other concepts, even just to say, hey, I, I don't I don't I don't agree with that. That doesn't work for me. And, and really working through why that's the case, you know, instead of just, well, you know, the person that I follow doesn't believe that. So I don't believe that or my parents don't believe that. So I don't believe that or my culture doesn't, you know, and so forth. So in some ways, I think working through that is is really important. And, you know, as a professor of education, you know, I'm, I'm very invested in these ideas of education. And I agree with you that education is incredibly socially constructed and most of North America, I mean, I don't know what your experience is um, with your education, but most of North America is still based on a 19th century model of, you know, Imperial Britain. You know, it's it's a very factory-based kind of system of education that is, um, you know, top-down. It is listen to a lecture. There's not a sense of trying to, and this isn't entirely true, of course, things are changing all the time, and I'm really impressed to see what does change. But as a whole, you know, standardized testing is still the primary mode of evaluation, um, which of which all the data and research shows is not truly education, right? It is just assessment. It's it's a way of kind of marking um, so that you're able to kind of move through the factory system, right? And have a have a result. So those those environments can really, I think, inhibit the ability to um, look at your you know social social constructions. However, within those environments, I'm sure we can all think back of all the great teachers that we've had, the great professors that we've had, you know, um, that really opened us up. And sometimes it just takes one person, you know, to to open that door. Sometimes you have five of them out of the hundreds that you have in university or, you know, or K through 12, and that can open a door. Um, equally, your classmates, right? I think we also we, we think about education as a solely individual endeavor, which of course it is in a sort of colonial system, but actually it's relational. And if you think about, I've learned more from the people that I've been in class with than I have from all the teachers and professors that I've had probably collectively. Um, just like right now in our conversation, we can learn so much from each other just by hearing our experiences and being open to that. So I think that's kind of a, a way that, Education can be a hindrance, but I think there is also a real opportunity and capacity and potential for um, us being able to look at these things. And, and maybe one of those ways to do it is looking through like, you know, stories and, and the different kinds of stories that exist and how that might reflect so differently than who we are. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about this first idea uh, in the book, which you basically describe as outlining the current culture of fear that we live in. And one of the things that you say in the book um, is that because fear remains widespread, stories about it proliferate. Stories can be used for understanding and education as well as for coercion and control. Stories rooted in fear dominate social media, news, mainstream media, family histories, relationships, and politics. Without understanding the concept of fear as socially and culturally constructed stories, it is difficult to see how it penetrates our daily lives and then by extension, how we can alter and rewrite our stories about it. As a result, a culture of fear should not only be explored, but questioned and transformed. And you know, the reason that struck me um, was because of an article that I came across on Medium yesterday. There's a guy uh, on Medium, and you may have I've read his work because he's become quite popular. There's a guy named Umair Haig, and he runs this, um, I believe, uh, site called or this publication called Eudomania or Eudonomics. And somebody actually wrote an article about him uh, titled uh, The Master of Catastrophe. And one of the things that he says is catastrophe is a kind of pornography. It's dangerous how quickly we become desensitized to it. If every day is a cataclysm, Armageddon, the apocalypse, we'll simply get used to it. Now more than ever, the urgent matters that face us need a cool head. Um, and on the flip side of that, there's truth to a lot of what this guy Umer Haig says like you know he um his article you know, that he wrote that I came across yesterday was why american life is a giant ripoff 
And he goes into detail, uh, you know, comparing you know life in Europe, where he compares housing prices, social services. I mean, you live in Canada, so you get free health care, but uh, he compares all of that, and it was really fascinating. And at the same time, he is kind of you know catastrophizing on a daily basis, and I think he's perpetuating the very thing you're talking about when you say this. Yeah, fear is a you know we live in a capitalist society, right? And and now the commodities are less about products and they're more about narratives, right? I mean, we've seen how many political leaders and companies make, you know, make their fame and their fortune now based on the narratives that they tell more than something they're actually selling, right? An actual usable product. And so I think fear is is really the, the currency of capitalism right now, um, you know, and particularly for more the, the right wing uh, media and politicians and those kinds of narratives, but certainly the left do it all the time as well. And, and you know, the catastrophizing, I think, is is sometimes a real um, uh, personal favorite of the left. You know, along with sort of shaming and and blaming that kind of culture. So, yeah, I mean, I think fear is by far right now the currency that is being sold and has done for a good twenty years now, like building consistently almost since nine eleven. You know year by year and then you you couple out with climate change and um you know um the the fallouts and and you know like around sort of global fascism and and what's happening around that and of course racial inequality and all these things i mean it, everything it's it's almost like there's a fire ready to light the match and throw, throw the fear on it's just that that keeps happening over and over again when there's so many different narratives we could be telling you know and and unfortunately because fear sells that's what we hear all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, so what are you, know, the other thing you go into are, in the book is patterns that contribute to fear in our lives. So, you know, what are the patterns that commonly contribute to this? I mean, outside of the, the media that we consume and this whole idea that, you know, fear is the, the currency of capitalism, uh, because I, I think it's not just the, the currency of capitalism. I mean, it's probably the currency of you know, our social structures and life in general, you go to college and it's like, okay, you better figure out what the hell you want to do or you're going to end up on the streets. I mean, that's <laughs> not exactly, you know, a narrative that inspires. No, it's true. Yeah. So you're, so you're asking about some, maybe some of the patterns. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things here. you say is that we all deal with uncertainty created by the stories we spin out about what scares us most. And the biggest fear of all is the unknown or not knowing which manifests mm -hmm. in many ways, but every aspect of life is a giant unknown you know like i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow that's why i've always thought it was the dumbest question when somebody asks you in a job interview you know where do you see yourself five years from now i'm like i don't know where the hell i'm going to be five weeks from now <laughs> well i think this is quite cultural right i mean we both live in north america um but I'm sure we're both very familiar with other cultures and how there's almost an embedded education culturally around dealing with the unknown, which is kind of constantly there for humanity, right? And much of what we do is to kind of cope with the idea of uncertainty. And that uncertainty ultimately is death, of course, you know, as humans, that's that's the ultimate uncertainty. But certainly, like you said, the uncertainty of what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to eat? What's my neck, you know, on a more survival level, but maybe on a more um, kind of evolved level, you might think, oh, what's what's my career aspirations? How do I move from good to great? You know, all the kinds of well-being and sort of wellness narratives around that. And I think in North America, we're, we're in, in some ways, maybe, you know, there's a real power to returning to sitting with uncertainty and being comfortable with uncertainty so that the fear that kind of unconscious fear that's always driving us, you know, can kind of be acknowledged because it's, you know, when I talk about fear in the book, not as something that is we want to remove or it's a problem, but something that when it drives our lives and makes all of our decisions, that's when the, the problem occurs. You know, fear is a great thing. It's, it helps us evolve, right? It's helped. I mean, if we didn't have fear, humans probably wouldn't be alive right now. You yeah. know, there's a sense in which we we, we have to be careful about historically where we get our food and where we're gonna you know um settle and what are the threats and and that's all you know what fear is a good thing you know and and but what to what level is it driving every decision that we make yeah 
Well, yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, if we didn't have fear, people would run, you know, try to cross, you know, a freeway in the middle of oncoming traffic expecting not to get hit or somebody like me would paddle out in 50 foot surf without the experience <laughs> to do it. Um, so I, I guess the question then is, you know, obviously we know that fear protects us from making stupid, reckless decisions, uh, but, uh, you know, it can also hinder us from making empowering decisions. So how do you figure out where that line is and overcome that and, you know, not let fear guide the decisions that could empower you? You know, I think it's really context specific, like everything, you know, I think it depends on the relationship each person has with fear in their lives. And, you know, and I think with me, you know, my my story around fear and why it was kind of a driving force of the book. I mean, we could talk about rewriting your stories, a lot of different aspects and and it's all relevant. I, I just focus kind of on fear as one driving way of looking at this because it seems so poignant and relevant right now in the current context of everything. So I thought, well, you know, that's a great thing. And fear is that hindrance oftentimes that allows us to kind of create generative stories. Um, so I think for me, my my sort of development around fear is it wasn't it wasn't like some huge epiphanic epiphanic moment where I, I said say to myself, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm, you know, my life's out of control and I just feel like fear is everywhere and I can't stop myself. But it was almost a slow build over time where little by little over the last 20 years, I felt my decisions, my responses were were more and more guided by fear. And I could, I could feel it growing, you know, I could feel it building in me. And finally, there was a point where, you know, almost like the frog in the warm water, you know, metaphor where, if the water's heating up as you're in the water, it doesn't feel that hot as opposed to when you jump in and when it's already really hot, you know. So it, it got to that point where I was in the warm water and it started to get to the boiling point. And I just said, how did I get here? Like when, did, you know, and having to track back and look at that. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of us. You know, it's it's not so much this. And I know, you know, we always like to talk about these, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, these these types of conversion moments of like, oh, you know, I had this happen to me and that changed everything. Or, you know, once this happened, then I, you know, did everything. And that that so those things happen, of course. But I think for a lot of people, they're not big, grand gestures. They're sort of a slow burn over time and they build and you you have to sort of deal with that. So I think for me, you know, that that happened. And I said, well, OK, well, what's going on here? Why why is fear so prevalent? Why are all my decisions kind of returning to this thing that I'm making decisions based on fear? And then it just sort of occurred to me that the things that I'm scared of aren't even real, right? They're just stories that I've narrated and created based on all sorts of things, you know? And they're just fictional stories. And why do they have so much power and control over me? Um, so, you know, that sort of set me down the path of, well, if we have all these fear stories about things that are kind of influenced, inputted upon us with through social conditioning and all sorts of things, then certainly we can have the power to rewrite those stories and actually create a different reality for ourselves, um, which obviously takes time. But certainly that's, um, I think that's part of my process of, of having to kind of face those fears. And I, and I think many of us are, are probably in very similar boats right now when that, in that, in that side of things. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I wonder, what was your biggest fear when you were younger, and, and what's your greatest fear at this point in your life? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I think when I was younger, hmm, you know, I think thankfully fear wasn't a strong factor when I was younger. Um, you know, I suppose like anyone, it was just sort of safety and trying to feel like I'm, I'm creating safety, but I don't, it's, it's interesting you say that because it almost as though fear has been much more prevalent as an adult, you know, whereas as a, as a child, I felt like it was much less of a driving factor and a presence in my, in my life. And as an adult, it, it's, it's built. And I'd say maybe now my biggest fear is, um, well, you know, it, it's almost a it's almost a social fear as a less of a personal fear. It's it's the idea of of sort of human extinction, you know, the idea of of and, and if not human extinction, almost, you know, the inequality that might occur before human extinction, you know, sort of where we're at as a as a world in terms of our our freedom and democratic processes. But then even if those work or falter, then we have sort of the larger issue of of are humans gonna survive you know, our current climate, um, you know, not to catastrophize, but our current climate catastrophe that this we're in the midst of. So I think my, my, my fears now are much more like reasoned and have, have reasons for them, you know, and they're not so, so irrational so much because there's like data for it, but nevertheless, it's something I would think about every day that, that there's fears around that. Yeah. Well, I guess the reason that I asked that is, is for me, like, you know, certain fears have changed with age, you know, I, I think, when I was younger and before I'd ever been in a relationship, I was terrified that I was going to end up all alone because I mm. didn't have a girlfriend in college. And then, you know, a couple of relationships that drove me insane. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm not afraid of this anymore when those didn't work out. And that was replaced by the fear of the potential of my parents not being around to see milestone moments in my life, which to this day is still my greatest fear is that one oh, or both wow. of my parents would die before I got married or had children. Wow. Yeah, that that's certainly powerful. Yeah. Um, well, let's start talking about um, this whole idea of scarcity, because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it, scarcity is so fascinating to me because scarcity is something that people use for marketing tactics. Like, you know, I mean, I hell, I can tell you in our own newsletters, we're closing the doors tonight is a scarcity tactic. Right. Um, right. You know, and, <laughs> and it works. Level, it's it's, you know, it's yeah. standard copywriting advice. But um, 
you know, you say looking at the bigger picture, scarcity culture is based upon the story that tells us we're never good enough. We do not make enough money. We're not beautiful enough. We do not work hard enough and we're not healthy enough. Do any of these statements of insufficiency sound familiar? And if you look in general at the literature around self-improvement, what does it do? It falls into the categories of health and wealth. You know, it was, I think one of our, our guests, Bushra Azar said, she's like, if you want to, you know, have a message that resonates, help people get paid late or made pretty much. Yeah. And, and I think that's a large part of, again, the value, the social systems that we value. And obviously we're in an economic system that is that of capitalism at the moment. And there's a real value around health and wealth, right? And there's almost a, you know, the system itself promotes um, a binary, a zero sum. You either have something or you don't, right? There's not a sense of spectrum or color or um, different shades within that. So, you know, I think then that's easy to quantify and it's easy to scarce, you know, to scarcify, I guess you could say, and, and create those scarcity narratives. And I think, um, I think what's powerful about the scarcity narratives is they, they are meant to produce fear, right? We come back to fear. They're meant to produce fear and therefore action or apathy. Sometimes apathy can be just as good as action when you're trying to use scarcity for, um, you know, economic or social kind of benefit. Um, and I think the big the big challenge around this and, you know, in, in sort of educational research, they call this deficit discourse, um, which is, you know, another way of saying, you know, talking about lack. And so if if we're if we're, you know, hanging out and having dinner, you and I and we're, we're friends and we're chatting about our lives and, you know, every question that I ask, your answer is always what you don't have and what's going wrong and, you know, um, you know, the, the, the money that you didn't make or the books that you didn't finish, you know, that's kind of creating the deficit discourse. And certainly that's not a place of sort of, you know, the well-being and well being in uh, wellness industry would say, oh, focus on the, the positive of that. But even just kind of focusing just on the positive, knowing that there's the, the lack on the other side still creates that that zero sum binary. So in strange ways, the the scarcity culture that we live in really does depend upon that belief system that there are two options. There are only two options. You know, it's a it's a binary, and and you you don't you know you want to be on the better version of those options. Where you know from from other cultural viewpoints and other epistemologies and you know ways of knowing and being in the in the world and other cultures, there are many options. There's no there's not never just two options, right? There's always the plurality of possibility, and so I think scarcity does grow out of that foundation of trying to create a two option system. You know, we have a two political party system. You know, you just look at North America, how everything is split into twos. And, you know, politicians always love to give that you're either with us or against us. You're the us versus them. And, you know, these are binaries that are created in many ways to create control and, and, and dominance and oppression. And, you know, dominance might just be you're a company and you're trying to get people to buy your product. But still, you're going to use these narratives of, like you said, you know, like, hey, if you don't, if you don't jump to the sale now, you're going to miss out, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. so th- there's like soft scarcity. It's not, you know, su- it's not yeah. damaging necessarily, but there's a, a sense in you're trying to attract action, whereas you have this sort of more hard uh, aspects of scarcity that can that can you know, like religions that can really create, um, well, certain religions will say that can really create a binary of, you know, if if you don't do this, well, you're going to you know, you're going to suffer for for eternity. I mean, that's a pretty big, <laughs> pretty big scarcity narrative to put on people. And it certainly would, you know, hopefully like literally scare the, you know, the, scare the, uh, you know, the, the God out of you or God in you, as it were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an interesting thing. Once you look at scarcity, it's everywhere, but it's mm-hmm. a thing that we don't ever talk about. We don't really talk about the power of this aspect in our lives and, and how it like in a given day, how many times we're confronted with a scarcity narrative in one form or another. And you've, you've spoke to a few of those already. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing you say is that in the current mode of capitalism called neoliberalism, enough is never enough. We must always work and be productive to sustain economic growth. Never ending growth remains the constant. But as we know, endless growth by definition is impossible. Within a model of scarcity, we've also been acclimatized to worship wealth and power because they are, according to the story, motivating us to work precisely because of the myth that if we do so, we too can become, can become wealthy. 
And I, I think that that really struck me because, uh, you know, I think that in the world of self-help in particular, there's a sort of false narrative that gets perpetuated that anybody can do anything, uh, you know, without taking probability of, of success into account, without taking genetics and, you know, intelligence into account, all of which play a role, at, you know, whether we like to admit it or not. I think the idea of genetic determinism is something that people hate in the world of self-improvement. Uh, True. And so as a result, you know, people have this idea of just never ending growth. And as you said, it's not possible. I remember uh, we had Paul Jarvis here who wrote a book called The Company of One. He said, in any field other than business, infinite growth is called cancer. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, if this is our dominant economic structure that we are basically conditioned by, then how do you begin to change this narrative of scarcity? Well, that's the that's the big question. You know, <laughs> that's the question that if we if experts, uh, you know, uh, practitioners, uh, you know, writers, if, if we had the answer to that, I think it would be easier. I think there's a lot of theory and speculation about what to do. Um, you know, for me, I, I truly believe that by changing our individual stories and rewriting our individual stories, has the impact to kind of um, impact collective stories. And actually, simultaneously, the more we see collective stories being rewritten, it changes our individual stories, right? So even something like, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and George Floyd um, and that whole, that that kind of moment in, in American history and even global, because it had global impacts, right? That created an effective change of, for many people's personal stories, right? And I know oftentimes in self-help and wellness industries, it's always about ourself. You know, it's always about, hey, you know, look at yourself. You can change everything. Like you said, you can do everything. You know, you want to be this in a year, just vision it and you're going to be that, right? And it's always about you, you, you. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas I think there's a real missed opportunity about how much society and culture influence and almost affect our path and who we are. And it's, and it's a relationship, you know, it's not just one side or the other, the more we do our work, the more we are looking at ourselves and the stories that we want and to want to rewrite, the more it affects the networks all around us. I mean, especially somebody like you who does this work. I mean, think of how many people you impact in a given month, you know, as an educator, I feel that way too, you know, where there's so many different students that go out in the world and how much impact that is. So there, there is that kind of relational aspect that, that we miss. And I think that, um, you know, when thinking about how we change these systems and how we think about these change of these systems, it does take time, um, but things can happen really quickly as well. And I think a big part of it is trying to have consciousness around the fact that there are alternative narratives, right? We're not, you know, there's not just one narrative of economics, right? Any good economist will tell you that the economy is a theory, right? It's a, it's, mm -hmm. it's a story. So we, we, are, we have tried different, theories and different stories, but it's not a fact. It's not gravity. You know, yeah. capitalism isn't gravity or, or the, you know, certain ways that we see the world aren't, aren't like scientifically solid facts. So I think that things are always changeable. And, um, you know, I think that's our big challenge right now to go back to your question. It's such, it's a great question, but it's like, how do we, how do we create and promote change? And of course, everyone has a different idea what that change is. But I think one thing most people agree on, but not everyone, is how do we create a generative change that benefits everybody, you know, in a, in a better way? Um, but obviously, that means we have to think about other people, not just ourselves. And that is the real impasse I see with some of this work. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've been reading a lot about this concept of interdependency and how, mm -hmm. you know, every system in the world is an interdependent system. You know, you as a teacher... Our, and, and students are part of an interdependent system called a university. You know, we're all part of an interdependent system called a society and a company is an interdependent system. The people who work there and the people who buy their products. And yet in an interdependent system, people prioritize self-interest over the interest of the collective. Uh, with that in mind, why do you think that capitalism has sustained so long as our dominant economic system? 
Well, I think there is, like you said, I think there is an inherent um, self-motivating factor for for humans. Um, you know, and I think that's where like certain levels of governance and leadership can, can be there for accountability. And I think that's always important. But of course, if those levels of, of leadership are rotten or, uh, you know, or corrupt or whatever, then obviously that, that makes it much more challenging. I think that, you know, economic systems like capitalism have certainly benefited people enough to feel like it's, it's fine. You know, why try to do something else? Um, but I do, I do get a sense that, you know, in the last 40 years, really, since kind of the late seventies, early eighties, when neoliberalism kind of took into effect and it was kind of a capitalism on steroids sort of thing where there's no regulation. And, um, there was, it was just kind of a, you know, a a culture of, of how, how much growth can we get and, and how big can we grow businesses? And, and there's not a sense of, of, you know, uh, attention on the worker. And then, of course, that's accelerated at the moment. And I think we are in a major transition where people are kind of uh, getting sick of that story and realizing that 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 story really hasn't been benefiting most people. And it really, you know, is not a, a sustainable model, as it were, and not just like environmentally sustainable, but a socially sustainable model. And so I think I think we're in the midst of those changes of conversations. And I again, I, I look at if you look at everything as stories, it kind of diffuses some of the division and the tension. Right. I mean, I'm using words. I'm using I'm naming it like capitalism. But if you just kind of say the story of economics, you know, so it doesn't become a divisive like, you know, um, issue where that could be soundbited out and be like, oh, well, they're against this thing. And which always happens now. Right. When you, you try to speak honestly about something, it's like, well, where's the soundbite and where can we demonize this person? But if we just kind of don't use those proper terms and say with stories of economics, I think people have a lot of pretty interdependent ideas of, of economics and what what is supportive in the stories they want to have around that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, people do want to have um you know, enough to support them and their families. And and they don't need a lot more than that. And that's okay. But of course, I think that there's a sense in which, you know, those narratives of, well, you, you know, you should become a millionaire or billionaire, and you know, you need to keep working toward that. And, you know, we need that kind of, you know, we need people to be supportive of that for that to keep going. I think those are when these things start to, you know, start to break down a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you say that, because, uh, you know, one thing that Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nation is that self-interest is the engine of prosperity. And I, I do think that there is a grain of truth to that. Uh, you know, and again, I think the problem is when you push it to the point of diminishing returns, because I think without self-interest, people wouldn't start companies, people wouldn't make art, people wouldn't write books, you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation. Exactly. So yeah, no. how, yeah. how do you balance that with you know, the reality of, of living in an interdependent society. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love that you bring up the term interdependent, you know, because, um, in part of my work, I look at environmental literacy and, and, you know, ecology is the, you know, relationships among organisms just at a very basic level and interdependence is a primary, um, I guess, a primary effect of an ecological system. And of course, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're all part of the ecological system of the planet. We are all interdependent, even if we try to, you know, think that we aren't, you know, we are like, for example, if, you know, uh, global emissions, you know, let's say coal emissions in China are never neutralized, it doesn't matter what all the other countries do, you know, so we're kind of tied into this globally as much as we or in the US, for example, doesn't have to be, you know, could be anywhere. But there's a sense in which we're all interdependent upon each other, despite these sort of arbitrary borders we've created, you know, in order to, you know, over over history, but actually, those are quite false. Um, So I think that the um, I think this the idea of interdependence and self motivation is important because I think both can happen at the same time. You know, there's a simultaneity of both. And, you know, if, if scarcity is built on a binary system, that's kind of an uh, either or, you know, I like to think of a more pluralistic way of, of, of seeing the world, which is uh, both and also. So it could be, it could be, it could be that you have two ideas that are contradictory, but they're both right. And they're both they're both connected and and they both are important to have out there. It doesn't like we have to choose one or the other. So I think that we are self-motivated and we need that self-interest. And I absolutely agree with you. That is such a key to, to everything we do. 
Um, and part of that is the, the fear factor we talked about, you know, the fear of survival and, and fear of like, we want to evolve and, and, you know, whether it's like simply evolve, procreate, you know, try to, you know, create something in our lives that are fulfilling or a more expansive view of that, that might be that, um, yeah, we want to grow a business and, um, we want to, uh, yeah, write more books and, and put ideas out and feel motivation around that. I think that's all a huge part of who we are as humans, which is why I think capitalism has a real positive, um, response to many, because I think that's the part of it that people really resonate with, that there's a sense in which I have agency in that. Um, but then I think, and also, but, and also there's a way in which we are self-motivated and we're all super interdependent with each other. So we always have to factor in that interdependence. I think when we're thinking about our self-motivation, I mean, you're a writer. Um, so you, this will resonate with you. And I always love to talk writing with other writers because it's such a peculiar practice, right? That it's hard to talk about with other people. Um, and one of the things about writing is it looks like this incredibly solitary practice that this one person does this when we know that's completely a myth. I mean, the amount of people that go into finishing a book, whether it's the production team and the editors and the publisher um, versus all the people that might be readers of our book or all the conversations that we've had in our lives that went into that book or the things that we've read, the songs that we've listened to. I mean, there's just a multiplicity of of influences that go into that book. And yet it looks like a centered kind of practice, but it's really incredibly interdependent. So I think that's kind of a metaphor, I think, for, for what I'm saying in terms of how we exist in our lives, that we are self-motivated and we always have to remember that we're so interdependent. And I think that's the piece that gets forgotten or is, is maybe purposely um, tried to silence. You know, that may be an argument, but nevertheless, I, I think that, that more and more people think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm alone in this, but we're not. You know, we actually re really matters that we need to really be interdependent and not just with the groups that we identify with, that we want to be with, but with everybody. You know, that's the hard part. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's get into this, you know, whole idea and this framework in the interest of time of uh, rewriting the story. I mean, you gave this really cool framework and I, I, I love it when people can come up with acronyms for things. I, I remember I was trying to come up with an acronym for create and it took me like four months until I finally did. And I was able to write the blog post I want to do about it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you have this sort of framework of recognize, embrace, witness, reinforce, integrate, tell and express or enhance. <clears throat> Can you go over that and explain how we use that to actually rewrite our stories? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, when I wrote this book, this was not the starting point, you know, I mean, I really wanted to go into how we rewrite our stories and, and really think about, yeah, like we've already talked about aspects of, of how we perceptions of the world and how we are socially constructed, how all that plays into who we are and the stories that we live and tell. And that's such a powerful place in some ways it took a whole book just to kind of give context you know and only to get to the point at the end where it's like okay here's the process um and so i i you know speaking of the acronyms i thought well you know acronyms are very helpful for people they're good mnemonic devices um i don't know if you you know read any sort of brenny brown's work but she always employs a pretty great acronym for these things so i was like yeah you know okay let's do an acronym and you know why not make it rewrite and so i did and then it was sort of a matter of trying to fit the pieces together. But um, so within that scaffolding, I, I might say that that's sort of how it came came to be. But nevertheless, I did want to provide some kind of, I don't know, process. I, I'm reluctant to say steps because of all the baggage that can go around that term. So I kind of call them stages. Um, but it's really a process. You know, these are processes and they aren't really to be taken too seriously but also to have kind of some form of grounding, because I know some some people really like to have that grounding and other people don't like to be prescribed certain things. So this is kind of a compromise for, for both those kinds of people where this isn't prescriptive, but it is a, a guide. Um, and yeah, sort of, you know, recognize who you are. I mean, I'll just quickly, quickly say that, go through this and you know, recognize who you are, you know, looking at your stories. Where did I come from? Who? What are my stories? Um, and, and that, that those are cultural, those might be through religion, those might be through education, those might be through certain class systems, you know, um, ethnic backgrounds, really quite, quite broad, but kind of figuring out who am I? And sometimes that can be an incredibly hard part of the process, you know, to do that self-reflection. You asked me at the beginning of this about high school and 
you know, sometimes that's, that's a period where oftentimes we're asking those questions, but not for everybody, you know, sometimes it's a lot later and, you know, midlife crises are kind of about who am I, right? <laughs> because those questions maybe didn't get asked 20 years earlier. So kind of getting that grounding, I think is an important part of the process um, to, to get a sense of what stories are in your lives and, and, and how they place you where you are, depending on whatever age you are. And then looking at how you can embrace those stories. So, you know, so, so, you know, really loving ourselves, really being able to say, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place, even though many of these stories may not be where I want to be, you know, you still have to kind of look at yourself and say, this is who I am. You know, there's an acceptance of that. And there's a way in which I think having that kind of um, love for yourself is is very helpful going through this process and not looking at yourself as damaged or in that kind of um, scarcity narrative, like, oh, you're the good or you're not, and you're not good. So how do you get good again? Well, no, you're, you're, you're enough right now. You're just, you're enough, right? You're doing it. Um, and then, you know, looking at how many of those stories, witnessing the fear, how many of those stories are connected to fear stories, you know, how, how much of your of your daily existence is driven by fear and really starting to unpack some of those pieces. And of course I go into this in more detail in the book, but um, these are all just quick overviews, you know, and then reinforce what you want is the fourth kind of stage and, you know, figuring out what stories do you want to start telling for yourself? Um, You know, what, how do you vision your future and how, and you can create that future right in your moment, right in the moment now, right? You have that power, um, you know, and, and, and that, as we talked about, deals with a lot of things. Um, but anyway, just trying to get a sense of what you want. Um, and that's obviously a, a challenging thing too, for many people. And then trying to build that new story, you know, using the the tools of storytelling, it could be, you know, the formal tools of like, okay, where's the plot and the narrative and, you know, the resolution and the conflict. And, you know, you can go through that process, which is really fun and, and spend some time with that. Or it can just be something as simple as, you know, I have a lot of fear or I have a lot of whatever around this, I'd love to rewrite that story. You know, uh, like I don't, maybe you could say, maybe the story is I don't love my body and I always feel shame around my body. So I want to create a new story around how I I do like my body and I do like my body image and and who I am around that. You know, something as simple as that is oftentimes where where these stories can go. And then, uh, you know, tell the six step stages, you know, tell the story to yourself and others, you know, storytelling is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, to tell and experience other people's stories. I mean, research has shown that our ability to uh, experience other people's stories is really enhances our ability to feel empathy. And that, of course, comes back to our own lived experiences. And research has also shown that if you tell stories and you feel like you're being heard and, and seen, that that is an, uh, also a real powerful sense of ceiling, uh, feeling a sense of, of self-worth and feeling a sense of, of, of empowerment. And then, you know, maybe we end on the stuff that kind of comes back to the podcast theme uh, mm-hmm. or your podcast theme, which is a great theme. And I'm a huge advocate of this and all my work and what I've done for 25 years is enhance your creativity. And, and I'd argue that none of this would be possible if we didn't have, we didn't, we can't, or we don't spend time cultivating our creativity and, and our creativity of who we are. You know, I mean, I, I make the claim in the book, just a very simple claim that everyone is a storyteller. Everyone. Even if you don't think you are, you're a storyteller. You're, you're, you're forged from stories. History is forged out of stories. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. You know, it's, it's completely who we are. I would also make the claim that everyone is creative in the same way of just a storyteller. And, and you might say those go together. Of course they do. But, you know, even if we separate them out, creativity is, is incredibly important for this kind of work. And, and, you know, just one last anecdote, and I'll finish with this is I taught, you know, first year writing at university for many years. Um, And so, you know, trying to teach the writing process, you know, is really challenging. And it's challenging not to say, well, it's challenging, of course, just to kind of work on being a better writer. But the real challenge is oftentimes psychological and all the fears and Uh, social conditioning and belief systems that have been constructed in people's heads about who they are as a writer, if they're a writer, if they're not a writer, you either born a writer, you're not a, you know, all those kinds of narratives. And I, I always, my belief around this is that, you know, sure, some people are born with maybe more aptitude for writing, 
but I, I really resist this concept of like, oh, you're either born a writer or you're not, you know, you're born creative or you're not, you know, this kind of zero sum absolute statement. I don't believe that. I believe everyone has this capacity and it's just a matter of cultivating it and, and spending time with it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I feel like this is a really deep rabbit hole that we could talk about for five or six hours. Indeed. Well, this has been really, really uh, insightful and thought provoking. And, uh, you know, one of those those interviews that I love because uh, it leaves you with more questions than answers. Yeah, um, I really so. enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed the time and, and the questions. And I agree. These are topics that I think we both align a lot on. So uh, uh, maybe another in the future. Yeah. Well, I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. Sure. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Sorry, say that again. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, maybe maybe just what we ended on. I mean, you know, it seems so simple, but almost the um capacity to be creative. I mean, creativity is is like humans shows similarity and distinction all at the same time. And I think being unmistakable in many ways is, um, you know, finding that capacity of difference while also sameness, you know, that simultaneity of both. And I think creativity is the fuel that drives that. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and uh, story and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything you're up to? Yeah, uh, my website is just my name, www.derekgladwin.com, and uh, rewriting our stories. This recent book of mine, it can be found on Amazon, local bookstores, um, book depository, you name it. And then um, I also have a website at University of British Columbia, which uh, is just where I'm a professor. So you can find me at any of those locations. And that's pretty much it. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.